Thank you for joining us for this episode of Talking Talent. I'm Nicole Fuqua. You're listening to our audio series where we dig into issues related to talent acquisition. Today's episode is special. Robert Piesnell, our Deputy UK Managing Director here at People Scout, recorded this interview with David Fairhurst, formerly the Global Chief People Officer at McDonald's. In it, they talk about the importance of stretching your HR thinking during this uncertain time of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm delighted to today to be joined by uh, David Fairhurst. Uh, now, David's uh, a well-known name globally across the, the HR community. Uh, in his most recent role, he was uh, exact, Executive Vice President, Chief People Officer at McDonald's Corporation. Obviously, that's one of the world's largest HR and training positions with oversight of almost 2 million employees in over 120 countries. Uh, prior to joining McDonald's, David was uh, group manager for OD at H.J. Uh, Hines. Uh, he then moved on and had a spell at SmithKline Beecham, where he was very much part of the team that supported the merger to form GlaxoSmithKline, uh, and then moved on to uh, Tesco, where he was corporate HR director at Tesco's for both Tesco's UK and international businesses, where he also led on global, global talent uh, function, function. So, David, welcome. Thank you, Robert. Hello, everybody. Hi there. So I guess, David, I mean, let's, let's just start with the context that we're all all too familiar with. Uh, and I'm going to try and, and uh, not use the word kind of uh, uh, unpredictable. But yeah, we are, we're living in very uncertain times. And for, for lots of businesses uh, and indeed governments, uh, we've got very, uh, there isn't a playbook in terms of uh, where we are now and what we're facing. So I guess, uh, taking your, your view and, and your kind of career perspective, how do you think that uh, HR leaders can, can provide the greatest value to their organizations during these uh, really turbulent times? Well, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, we're certainly going through very worrying and unprecedented times, and much has been said out there about the strong leadership that's going to be required to help people navigate through it until we see a light at the end of the tunnel. But specifically to my own profession, uh, never has there been a time when we are needed more as people professionals. Uh, a lot is going to be expected. Uh, and we do need to look after ourselves as individuals so that we can continue to serve others. But in addition to leading the people strategy in the short term uh, with the immediacy of the business disruption, there are a number of themes, I think, where we can create some value and some, some best thinking. Um, first of all, around talent. Talent has today and will continue to be of paramount importance and it's critical that we continue to take a longer term view on it. Back in 2014, I illustrated the, to, to industry that we would see a workforce cliff where the demand for talent outstrips the supply, right about now actually. And that's not changed. Whilst business may sadly struggle in the short term uh, with labor and, and, and potentially putting people to be unemployed, but it's imperative in my mind that the businesses retain talent, think about the retention of talent, so, so that they um, can be there for their people right now, and then in return, their people will be there for you in the months and years ahead as we enter recovery. So talent's the first thing that springs to mind and how we think about that. The second is well-being. Well-being was um, already a topic of growing prominence and interest in the boardroom. Uh, and post-COVID-19, the well-being of employees, and I'm talking broadly, mentally as well as physical and so on, is paramount. 
we need to support employees, whether in the workplace or whether working from home. And the key to well-being is, for me, a very simply, a caring and supportive culture. And the key to culture that's caring and supportive is having line managers with strong emotional intelligence. So for me, EQ, line managers with EQ, is what matters most in well-being, supported, of course, by a strong people function. And there are going to be all sorts of non-work-related matters which affect well-being of employees, financial well-being, uh, to name but one. And the work of companies like Wagesing, for example, that I'm involved in, is doing a lot to build financial education, streaming pay, or helping um, seek uh, the types of uh, financial support that people may need in times of difficulty. These sorts of workplace innovations are the sorts of things that can really support the reduction of one of the biggest areas of stress in the workplace, of course, which is personal finances. So there will also be many other conversations going on in organizations looking at all the scenarios and I'm sure reconciling some very seemingly irreconcilable dilemmas that businesses are facing right now. But there is an essential role in being the advocate for people in leadership discussions for our profession. The senior team are going to be focused on their levers to help the business grow, finance, operations, marketing, comms, IT. People need a voice at the table, and that is the HR profession's role. And finally, to, to your question, and it's a big question, so it's a big answer. Um, as tough as the short term is, I would suggest trying to take a step back to watch and listen for learnings. I think that there will be a new work order coming out of this tragedy. Things like future work from home patterns with reduced commuting by at least 20%. The strengths and weaknesses of leaders that come to fruition as a result of this uh, test. Opportunities for recognition when all this has passed with people who have been extraordinary through the difficult times. Investment requiring skills and infrastructure for the next wave, uh, for the, or for the next time this uh, could happen. But there may be more fundamental shifts in how people view their jobs, uh, the expectation to personalise their jobs. Lots of things, I think, are going to come out of this that the HR profession can really start to think about. So those are some of the things that spring to mind um, against the, the current challenge. Okay, no, thank you for that. And I agree with you. I think just thinking about the whole landscape of work, what people expect to employers, uh, from employers, you know, where they go to work and, and uh, what the, the shape of that look like, I, I think will fundamentally change. Okay, I guess let, let's talk a bit more about you, really. So much of your earlier career was, uh, was in the UK and across Europe. I guess I'm keen to, to hear from you. What were the, sort of some of the, kind of the key differences that uh, you experienced uh, when you stepped into that kind of global people director role? Uh, in particular, I guess, uh, what nuances did you find um, with that role being based in North America? Yeah, well, first of all, um, a lot of differences, but let me talk about cultures, as that's probably the biggest difference that springs to mind when you ask that question. I mean, for the last 15 years, I've had the privilege of working nationally in the UK at a European level, there was 40 countries there, and then ultimately in the global role where there was just over 120 countries. And I was lucky to have I've had a, a rich cultural buildup of learnings, if you like, during the last 15 years. But a national culture is the context in which everything happens in each of these 120 plus countries, including organizational culture. An org culture of, for example, if you take uh, customer obsession, even if it's consistent in a business across markets in theory, of course, it looks quite different in practice and delivery in different parts of the world. 
And I remember a friend of mine, Dr. Fons Trompenar, an academic I greatly admire, I've worked with him, uh, said once that no word of cultures differ as much as inside Europe, as an example. So my reflection is that we need to be great students of national cultures and appreciate that cultural differences are simply different answers to the same questions. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. You know, some people drive on the left-hand side, some people drive on the right-hand side, both logical, both work, as long as you know which one you're in. Uh, the trick is to be constantly asking how an initiative or a message will play out in those different contexts. So I've lived in the States for the last five years, uh, but there are many things that are different, some subtle, uh, some more obvious, uh, some less obvious. But I've been surprised by how different the U.S. culture is to the U.K. In fact, if I remember correctly, Robert, it was you who bought me a book when I first came over to the U.S. called Working with Americans, oh, yes, uh, yes. Which, uh, which provided me with uh, I mean, some valuable insights uh, and saved me some precious time in understanding a more sort of cut-to-the-chase uh, business culture. And there are many things that are really impressive about the U.S. culture. And I've found that, in a way, living in any culture that's different from your own is really quite helpful as, as it's a daily reminder um, to try and view things through a global lens versus a US or, or UK lens. So that's for me is the answer to the question. The biggest difference uh, of the role is not the technicalities of the role, it's the cultural context and moving from one culture to another, how to view things around the world using different lenses. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I guess if we look at uh, McDonald's, and certainly, you know, I, I know that you and they have got a, a real kind of track record in delivering, you know, innovation, I guess, across the HR and talent space for, for a number of years. Uh, and I've certainly sort of seen some of the good work in the UK and Europe, but I guess I'm keen to get uh, your view on, on what, what are some of the projects that you're most proud of uh, during your time with McDonald's? Yeah, well, first of all, the, the context of this around innovation and, and things that we do for our employees, for our customers that we're proud of. I mean, customer expectations continue to evolve uh, at an ever-increasing rate. And it's a bit like an escalator. Imagine that an escalator that's going up and up and up. That what is great one year uh, for a customer uh, is sort of expected and then seen as average the next year. So you go from exceptional to average every year if you don't keep moving. And that speed of that escalator is getting faster and faster. It's what psychologists, I believe, call the hedonic treadmill. And this, by the way, is exactly the same for employees as it is for customers. Every year, the escalator continues, and you have to continue to in uh, innovate. Innovation matters. And having an agile, innovative people capability is necessary to meet and exceed those expectations. It's also reminded me, uh, talking of expectations, about the quote from Akio Morita, the founder of Sony. He said that something like, customers don't always know what they will want and need. Our job is to be innovative and be ready and waiting for them. Well, let me tell you, employees are just the same. Just the same. They don't always know what they're going to need, uh, but you have to be there waiting for them. Uh, and that's why innovation matters. So I'm proud of all the HR talent and external suppliers who've focused on innovations with me over the years and I guess my role is simply to create a climate for this to happen and ensure that great thoughts are brought into practical reality. In fact it's partners like yourself Robert and, and your talented teams that have really courageously worked with us on projects like the infamous Not Bad for a Mac Job campaign which uh, for those who don't remember it it was a campaign that we led literally 
trooping around the UK with digivans and standing outside the Oxford English Dictionary petitioning against their definition of the word McJob and a whole campaign around that. Uh, it was a decade and a half ago, but I have to say to this day, it was one of the most successful corporate employer branding projects uh, that probably is out there. And it had some outstanding and sustained results. So that's a great example of innovation working with partners. But there are lots of examples over the years, but I'm going to talk about four recent um, examples that spring to mind because um, you asked me for some more recent uh, things. And so I'm going to talk to you about a global example briefly, a cultural example, a tech example, and a workforce um, innovation example. So firstly, on global. Uh, the global example I'll give you is, it doesn't sound very exciting, but it was the development of a diversity strategy for the global McDonald's business, bear in mind 120 odd countries. And the innovation really is in the production of the style of framework. We called it the four R's, uh, four R's, which is representation, rise, reputation, and reach. And the innovation was really creating a framework that was memorable and engaging that each country around the world could then populate with its own examples of progress around representation, rise, et cetera, and reach. But let me just give you one example within this example, which is within the representation R, the use of AI technology that we put in place was applied to all of our job specs and all of our external advertising. So we use this learning technology to identify bias that existed that we didn't even realize was there, unconscious bias in our advertising and our specs. As a result of that AI tech, we massively increased the number of women applying for jobs. Why? Because the tech and the learning showed us what we needed to change to stop the male bias in our advertising. So just a simple example within a framework of what you can do globally to inspire a system to do things that are quite interesting, that actually have a big impact on things like diversity. Second example um, is culture. And this is about changing the environment into a more progressive, open, supporting relationship between the employer and the employee. So I challenge the, the notion with my team of performance management, and in fact, renamed it to be called performance motivation. Performance management moving to performance motivation. Why? Because the fundamental belief that you can't manage performance, we're not robots, right? You cannot manage performance, but you can motivate it. So what that change of title signified was some really big changes in the organization. The removal of all paperwork, the focus simply on three goals, no more, no less, 360 feedback, so you get you, uh, you know, multiple people feeding back on you, and the separation of career chats the separation of career chat to the anniversary of your service with the organization. So you simply get a text saying, hey, Robert, it's time for your career chat with your boss. It's the anniversary of when you join this organization. So the separation of careers, the move to performance motivation, the removal of paperwork, the removal of competencies, and very simple, different climate and environment was for me a real innovation about ensuring that process serves to motivate and drive performance and not vice versa. Got it. So what, kind, what, example. Kind, what kind of outcomes came yeah. from that? Was there, were there some tangible uh, results that you saw uh, from that? Yeah, well, first of all, most organizations have these performance management systems. You know, Deloitte back in 2015 added up that it was taking them 2 million hours a year to conduct this process. 
most hours of which were spent between managers talking to other managers about what they were going to do and calibrate their ratings and whatever, and very little time actually affecting the employee's performance or even talking to the employee. Mm -hmm. So what this is about is spending all the time, not on paperwork and HR process, and we have a propensity to, to create process that serves process, but actually to spend all the time having a conversation with three goals, a simple 360 asking simple three questions that you organize as the employee through your phone with your stakeholders. And then, yes, there's still teeth with this process. Yes, there's still a rating and a grading that, that comes out of it, but there's not this huge process of bureaucracy. So what happened is the employees were then telling us, and we measure these things, that they're really clear about their objectives. They're really clear about what three goals they're going for. They're really clear about how their goals link to other people's goals. They feel motivated by the, the performance um, uh, conversation and they understand what their career destination looks like because that's separately done. So the, the employees were telling us that this was actually impacting performance. And of course, there are wider business measures uh, around McDonald's and business performance that we were looking at correlating the performance uh, motivation process linked to the business performance. That's essential. If you've got a process that doesn't actually add value in driving the performance of the business, then the process has to be dismantled and challenged. So that was the second example. Hopefully okay. that was an, in an interesting one. Yeah, the yeah, third one's right. technical. It's always exciting to talk about technical, but this one was really good, and I know you'll love this one, Robert. But you know, hiring continues to be a focus, and McDonald's needs to generate millions of applications uh, a year. And this is a tech-first tech process. So we wanted to generate interest and intrigue in applying applications for McDonald's around the world. So what we did was we uh, thought about this and innovated, and we became the world's first voice-activated recruiter by actually hiring the most prominent uh, head of recruitment, which was Alexa or, oh, yes. uh, on the Amazon or Google. You may have seen it in uh, Piccadilly, or you may have seen it in Times Square being advertised, or you may have seen it in Japan or other places around the world. So this was very simple, is that we got, you can say to Alexa, Alexa, I want a job at McDonald's. And this was publicized, and then it takes you into the recruitment process. It was technically not that complicated because it was about the programming of Alexa, but it attracted 50 million media hits and obviously generated thousands upon thousands of applications. So the message from this is that, and obviously others will follow, you know, and it's, but it's about being first and it's about disrupting. Disruption in talent and recruitment is really important because a lot of what's out there is very mundane. A lot of recruitment, mass recruitment advertising is very same as, and it's very mundane, and it's not very interesting. So challenging and disrupting the market, especially one that appeals to speed and convenience and tech, is going to be a winner. And that was a very simple thing to do, not very expensive thing to do, that attracted a lot of attention. It's no use in this world doing really good things. Uh, and nobody knowing about it. And so this is a good example of where you do something that doesn't create that much effort, you know, a good team working on it, by all means, that actually uh, the output has uh, and creates a lot of attention for your brand. So that was the third example, which I think was quite rather fun. Yeah, and um, I, I certainly saw a lot, of the, a lot of the PR coverage globally and in the UK about it. It, it got uh, made huge airwaves. Yeah, exactly. And it still works, so it's still good. So. Anybody listening to this, try it and um, apply. And you can also say that you want to be the CEO of McDonald's and see what it says to you because obviously the system is cute enough to know about the sorts of ways in which you can be playful. And that's, that's actually what it created as well, by the way. It created people playing with it to see what, what we could do. 
to see what jobs you can apply for, to see how you can test it as, you know, uh, as people do. And, and there was a lot of fun with that on social media, uh, generating a lot of attention. And I think, you know, uh, it, it was admired as a process, particularly for those who were technically interested as well, that we would even think that way. What does that say about a business that's willing to innovate around its recruitment process? Probably that it's willing to innovate around its employees and its customers too. So I think that's a, just a simple but great example of thinking differently. And final example I'm going to give you, which I said was about workforce, is obviously we need to continue to attract a broad and diverse uh, workforce uh, and, and ensure that there's a, an inclusive environment to make sure that workforce uh, it, you know, comes to full fruition. Uh, there are many thousands of young people around the world uh, who, through no fault of their own, have found themselves excluded from the workforce. And this is still and continues to be a rich seam of untapped talent. So the innovation here was to work with the International Youth Foundation, IYF, who are a great organization, uh, and commit to provide training and support. Uh, the commitment in McDonald's was 2 million plus of those people to, to give them effectively a helping hand through this organization, providing like sort of personal skills, training and support in much needed communities to get them back into the work, workplace. So I think the way we went about that, the way we partnered with IYF, the way that we went to scale, the way that we saw the potential in people that are just unemployable young people uh, is a great example about how you can make an impact in communities and innovate around, you know, a good cause, but has, you know, a really good impact on the business too. So those are four examples that I share with Team Pride and, um, you know, hopefully those are, are interesting stimulus. Yeah, and I certainly see, and there's some uh, consistent threads, I think, coming through for me around kind of innovation and, and being disruptive, but also that sense of social conscience and kind of CSR that I think is really important. Let's look at something else now. Now, I've seen you talk a few times really about the importance of culture. Uh, and I'd be keen to get a sense of what would you say to employers who are looking to you know, maybe articulate, but certainly improve their culture. And I guess in this turbulent world, how do they ensure that whatever they put in place or whatever initiatives they drive are fit not only for now, but also for the future? Great question. And, um, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, talent and really how it remains king of topics. But if, if talent is king, then culture is the kingdom. Um, years ago, culture was seen as a very much a sort of, you know, softer, if you like, HR type topic, but how things have moved on. Um, culture has gone way beyond the notion of a sort of poster, a set of values on the wall, you know. Indeed, it's it's become, and certainly in my eyes, the number one topic um, that I've seen. And certainly when I came into the top role in HR in McDonald's, it, it became the number one conversation around culture. And to an extent that I didn't even, even surprise me, if I'm honest. So the discussion for me here is around how do you create a high-performing culture and one which literally pays cultural dividends. In other words, you should see the culture as the, stra as the thing that is going to drive the strategy and the business performance. So figuring out, defining this culture, harnessing it is clearly a critical, if not the most critical, uh, role for future-focused uh, HR people, professionals. So what I've learned um, to that point is that there are a few key stages in defining and redefining it. And I've had the benefit over the last five years or so of really helping reshape, redefine, 
refocus a culture um, uh, on a big scale that you know is a real privilege to have worked in. And I've got a number of learnings. But first of all, defining the culture. Dave Ulrich, who I'm sure we all know as a leading academic in in uh, in our field, has taught us that the important consideration. I think this is the the real the real most important point is to challenge the organization to think outside in. In other words, what would we want to be known for by our best customers or other stakeholders, right? And I make this point as some organizations have thought about it the other way, uh, other way around. They've thought about it as an inside out and they've actually moved to cultures that fail to deliver on what is relevant for the customer, uh, which usually leads to being a total disaster. And there are many examples out there of, of, of organizations uh, who lost sight of the, of the customer uh, view of what their culture should be and got themselves into a complete uh, disaster. So that's the first thing I would say, is defining where you, where you are uh, or, or where you want to be. And culture really should be about where you see the organization being at its best rather than a definition of us on a, on a pretty mundane day. So it should be aspirational, it should be future focused, um, and it should be something that drives strategy and, and, and performance. The second thing is then where the fun begins for me. Um, culture, of course, can't be taught or cascaded through a, a poster or a communication cascade. It's a process of socialization and exploration. And my learning here is, it's by using models that show the tensions and trade-offs of the movement of your culture in an organization. If you want to be more of this, you've got to be less of that. And what's the implication, right? So if you want to be more, you know, if you want to be more driven by innovation, um, you know, how does that fare against a trade-off of being a family-type orientated uh, organizational culture? And so on and so forth. Individual to collective, you know, and so on and so forth. So as you think about it, the thing I would say is helping people work through the tensions and trade-offs and play with it and have a dialogue in the organization through well-thought-through communications and a well-thought-through engagement strategy is where the fun really is. And that, that is the most important part. And the third part is then defining the behaviors that is expected uh, in the organization that links to that definition and that links to that exploration. And by the way, you may change some of the behaviors as a result of those dialogues in, in that fun part. Uh, the thing I learned in this third part of defining culture is, is two things. First of all, telling people what you're not about is sometimes as helpful as telling them what you're expecting behaviorally. So saying that we want to do less of this and more of this, the less of this shouldn't be avoided because that can be really helpful to people understanding where we're moving from and to. And the second thing that uh, I learned is that you can't take six new cultural dimensions and ram it into an organization uh, immediately. What you want to do is pick one, two, or maybe three of them, really focus on them, optimize them, push it, engage it, communicate it, emphasize it, metaphors, all the rest of it, and then maybe take another couple. So you need to take, you know, if you're taking six dimensions or whatever, take one or two, optimize them, take three or four, optimize them, take five or six, optimize them. So those are my three sort of, you know, learnings on this, but all culture is the kingdom and HR in my mind can hold the keys to a lot of this. 
Okay, no, thanks. That makes absolute sense to me. And that kind of pragmatic drip feeding as opposed to trying to some kind of corporate, clumsy corporate push down makes, makes total sense to me. Um, you mentioned a few times in this, in this conversation around change. And obviously, um, you know, we, we all know change is around us. We know the pace is pretty relentless. Uh, and there's that uh, apocryphal line that uh, the change now, you know, the pace of change now is the slowest it'll ever be. I guess what comes out of that is that this, uh, you know, unending change, you know, demands new approaches and a kind of an always on approach, I guess, to transformation. So what, what have been some of your personal learnings about how best to navigate change and maybe kind of create that ongoing organizational readiness? Yeah, it's a great question. Very, very relevant right now. And, um, and I don't think about it, you know, in the people strategies that I've developed over time, I've typically focused on sort of three areas. First of all, leadership, you know, what, 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 is, what is getting the right leaders in the organization with the right capabilities look like? Um, the second area is usually around org structure and design. So creating the right environment and the right fluidity of talent and so on. And the third area is talent, you know, ensuring that you've got the right people throughout the entire organization that are fully engaged with you um, throughout the organization. As an aside, by the way, the hardest part uh, is never creating the right strategy. I mean, if you get the right brains and you have the right listening channels and you have the right insights, you can get the right strategy in three or four months. The hardest part is aligning the workforce behind the strategy. In terms of alignment, it's often not the most senior, it's not the senior team, or the most junior. It's moving what I call the middle earth of an organization where the skill of the HR professional is really tested. If you can move middle earth of an organization, and I say that respectfully, but if you can move that middle group, then the rest of the organization will be in a good place. So anyway, coming back to the strategy relative to change and org readiness to your question, if I take that structure, first of all, leadership, um, leaders are, uh, face a very complex world, um, and, and, and it's getting even more complex, very often with a set of dilemmas to reconcile, very rarely with a straightforward black and white answer. So developing leaders to be what I would call and leaders, A-N-D, and leaders, is imperative. And uh, what do I mean by that? It's leaders who can deal with today and deal with the future. So this is a big test right now. You know, and the best leaders right now will be those that can deal with the short term, but they've not lost the longer term pace. They're not thinking beyond, uh, you know, they're thinking beyond the pandemic. And so you've got to do both. You know, some people call it ambidextrous leadership and the different terms for it. But I like this simple and it's today and the future. Can leaders do both? The second thing on leaders, leaders who can think markets and enterprise, right? You've got to think about a country or a unit or a section and you've got to think about the enterprise. It's leaders who can think about execution and innovation. You know, you get those who are really good at executing, those who are really good at ideas, got to do both. And it's leaders who can do stuff and cause attention. Remember that what I talked about earlier, you might call it merit and attention. You know, you know I talked about earlier, you know, that the campaign with Alexa, you've got to do good stuff. So it had to work. It had to be something that drove recruitment. It had to be good procedurally. It had to be technically capable. But it also is no use if nobody noticed it. So you have to have merit and attention in this world. So those are, that's the leadership thing is what I would look for is and leaders. The second thing, which I think might be uh, interesting, is around organi organization design specifically, the secondary strategy I usually talk about. 
I think that we should rename and refocus organization design, which I think hurts organizations. It hurts organizations. I think we should rename it to organization dynamics. For too long, organizations have put this very, it's a very static approach. They, they put a structure into an organization. They let it stew for five years, um, usually having had a major disruption to put it in in the first place, and then have another major disruption, usually with a big consultancy fee, right? So organizations should get out of that cycle and should be evolving their designs in a much more real-time manner. Um, workforce planning, for example, which again is very narrow about which person, which job, at which time, should be work task planning. What are the tasks that this business needs to be working on over what period of time and what's the best way of solving those, those issues or, or solving those tasks and is it technology, is it outsourced, is it suppliers, is it internal? So we've got to think about org design differently, but the number one thing, which is why I renamed it, um, is make it more dynamic and make it more ongoing. So that's the second thing that I think helps you be organizational ready, that you don't end up with an out-of-date structure. The third thing, the third level is talent. Post the Industrial Revolution, uh, we made sense of jobs by categorizing them, right, into job descriptions, pay points, evaluation, almost to the point of having systems which try to keep you as the employee within the boundary of a defined role, almost getting punished if you go outside of what that job description asks you to do. The job defined what we did. Now, we're starting to see this going to reverse, and I would suggest that post-COVID-19, this reversion may go into overdrive, i.e., where we personalize our jobs more, whether that be in, in tasks that we do or the relationships within our job or how we frame our roles. This is a concept that academics would call job crafting, bringing yourself to your job and making it different and better and evolving it. But we are going to see a revolution in this, in my, is, would be my prediction. So watch this space. So those are the... Um, you know, the three areas that I would say get you organizational ready for change and leadership, org dynamics, and think about job crafting. Those are three tips that I would give around that um, answer. Brilliant. No, I think lots, lots to take away and digest there. Um, obviously, you've had a brilliant career, lots of, lots of really varied blue chip organizations. Um, if you had a time capsule uh, and you could go back in time and maybe talk to yourself 20 years ago as a, uh, a, a budding HR professional, what business advice would you give yourself? Oh my goodness, 20 years. Um, well, 20 years ago, um, I just started at Tesco um, as an HR director and it was an exciting time joining an exciting retailer. It was in growth mode, and I met so many talented people there, many of whom you know, I'm still connected to, and I had a great team of hardworking, dedicated, can-do people. Um, but you know, with the benefit of hindsight, um, there's probably a few things that spring to mind that I might advise myself if I was thinking about my time back then, uh, specifically at Tesco. Firstly, um, be bolder with tech, be bolder with technology. I mean, we created back then uh, an online club, for students. Students made up a significant proportion of the workforce in, um, in Tesco. Uh, you know, they were a segment to themselves and they were an important part of the workforce. So like anything, how could you do something really interesting for them? And we created a club called Debut, your debut at Tesco. 
And it was groundbreaking. It won awards. It was an online club. It helped you move between university and home, term time, non-term time, from one uh, supermarket to another without losing your job, without hassle, which improved our turnover. It was great for the students. So it was simple. It was great. It was using technology. Oh, my goodness, we should have taken it further. So that was one of those ideas. And, you know, subsequently, I've, I've seen... Different iterations uh, in organizations like in McDonald's, we took a, a product called Our Lounge, which wasn't just for students, it was for all employees, which is something that I brought into the UK business and then that expanded in, in many markets around the world. Um, but the debut club um, struck me as something that I thought, oh, I wish we should have been bolder. And it was scary back then with some of the tech. You know, it, 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 in, in some ways, it's, it's, it's less complex and less scary now, but it was something that we should have invested further and quicker. The second thing was, you know, Tesco was famous for its use of data to insights, like the use of, uh, like the organization John Humby, which was owned by uh, Tesco, I think, for a while, and, and the Tesco Club Card, and almost the, the closest company in the world for one-to-one -one marketing and, and use of those insights. I should have pushed harder for the people insights to move faster and deeper. We had the ability. We had the expertise. We were using it a lot in the consumer sector. It should have gone harder and, uh, and faster. So. That and finally, you know, what I would say is, I've, as I look back at some of my old pics, uh, pictures, and look at me presenting, particularly at my time in in um, in, uh, in Tesco, and I can see a picture here sitting on my desk of me uh, at Tesco with some of my colleagues. I probably could have used a little less hair gel, to be honest, uh, <laughs> than I had at that, at that point Excellent. in time. So that's probably the the number one learning out of all of this. Brilliant. Be careful what you look like. Brilliant. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so I mean, that's been a really good, I guess, canter over your view of the kind of the current world, certainly some of your learnings from the past, etc. Uh, I guess the obvious and, and question hanging out there is, what's next? What, what, what's the next chapter for, for David Fairhurst? Well, yeah, it's um, it's a great time for me. Um, you know, I've, I've worked for so many brands, um, and um, it's a great time to be thinking about, you know, what am I good at? What am I not good at? And, you know, what would make me most happy, right? Which is a really important part of working and thinking is, you know, what brings you happiness and what will you enjoy? Um, no surprise that I've already been attracted to a fantastic business I mentioned earlier called WageStream, who are disrupting in the area of financial well-being and doing a great job, particularly demonstrating their strength as a leader in how they've pivoted overnight to support the NHS at this difficult time with pay streaming. And so, you know, a shout out to Peter Portman and his team, you know, such a great privilege to work with talent like that. So that's like an advisory role, but I'm considering my main gig uh, and I have a real open mind as to what and where that will take me, which is a pretty exciting thing to do. Um, and so I'm, I'm in exploration mode right now. But in the meantime, of course, I'm coping with, two small kids in lockdown, which is making me into a uh, pepper pig expert, right? So uh, uh, crazy time. But So I'm full-time dad right now um, uh, at home. But as I say, I, I hope that pretty soon I'll, I'll, uh, I'll make a, a decision around uh, my, main, my main activity. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Well, I mean, David, just you know, a short time with you for me, as always, uh, stretches the thinking about HR. Certainly my HR lexicon grows, whether it's job crafting, Middle Earth or and leaders. Again, you seem to continually expand the HR dictionary. Uh, been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining the uh, People Scout podcast. And obviously, we wish you the very best of luck going forwards. A real pleasure. Thank you, Robert.